Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you. I didn't co-write Shock Value. I wrote the whole book. <laughs> I didn't do any as told to. Let me see. I'm going to take this off here. So I, I think the way they have this is um, I'm going to read a chapter first, and then we're going to do questions. With uh, And it looks like I don't need conversation with anybody because you're all here. So you look like the inquisitive type that will be ready with questions. So hold on. And uh, so this is my first stop on the tour, um, the paperback tour. I did the Bill Maher show last night, and um, I'm here from Baltimore, <laughs> which has been jumping lately, obviously. All right, so I'm going to uh, pick a chapter. Let me move this here, just so, all right. I, I try to pick a hideous one, you know. Um, the book is certainly written, um, before I left, everybody said to me, oh my God, you shouldn't do this. Everybody gave, was really seemed appalled that I was going to hitchhike by myself from Baltimore to San Francisco. So I thought, well, maybe I should be scared. Maybe I should think of the worst things that could happen and then the best things that could happen. So I wrote them fictionally before I went and did the real trip, which actually took 21 rides. But I imagined 15 good rides and 15 bad rides. And uh, this is one of the bad rides. Uh, uh, Number five, called Eugene. Great. I'm stuck inside city city limits, the worst place to hitchhike. My cuts are sore, and the new tattoo is going to get infected. I can tell. I should go to the police, but then what? They'd be big-time publicity, and I could never continue the trip, and there goes the whole deal of this book. And besides, maybe I did deserve a little bit of the punishment for that cake, but certainly not this. You'll have to read that chapter to figure out what that's about. Uh, I look down at my chest and see the yellow fluid oozing out has turned brown, and the letters, especially the A and H of asshole, are starting to swell. (laughs) I should go to the hospital, but then again, how do I explain this hideous epitaph scrawled on my chest? Oh, this? I was just drunk. I'm sure there are great plastic surgeons once I arrive safely in San Francisco who can help with laser surgery tattoo removal if I can just get there in one piece. But nobody picks me up. I keep walking anyway because a few basement buffs, that's the chapter before, are still following me. I pose for cell phone pictures with a couple of them, and that seems to do the trick. All except for one persistent African-American Gertie imposter, a man, a woman, who won't leave me alone and wants to come. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No page turner here. Wants to come along. I try to explain that no one will stop to pick me up hitchhiking with a Gertie lookalike, but she's persistent. The last chapter is actually, uh, there's a great book by Kate Millick called The Basement about this very scary killer. And, uh, and I, I wrote about her in my book, Shock Veo, and this is she picks me up in revenge to pay me back for writing about her. That was the, that's the chapter before. And tortures me just like she tortured her victim. Finally, I show her my chest, and while she thinks it's fake, she's still impressed. An exclusive shot of Gertie and me and my horrible new tattoo too seems to satisfy her. She retreats happily, adding the photo from her cell phone to her Basements R Us blog. 
Just when I think I'm going to pass out, a car stops for me. I'm in luck, I think to myself, once I get in the car and painfully put on my suit belt. Eugene, as he introduces himself, looks like a hippie. He'll be gentle. No funny stuff for this guy. He, he explains he's going to St. Louis, but will let me off at a rest area outside the city on I-70, so I'll have a better chance to get a ride further west. He explains that he's a vegan and offers me something to eat. I am starved out of my mind. I don't have any food issues. I can eat anything. At least, I thought I could. Eugene offers me a raw turnip, which I guess is better than nothing. He rants against the evil of any animal products and then continues out against the criminality of force-feeding Hollywood hospital patients and prisoners' non-vegetarian meals. I agree, what else can I do? And ask him for another turnip. Hungry little mother, he asks good-naturedly, tossing me one. I notice he is eating what looks to be hedge clippings. And when I ask him what he's having, he tells me that is exactly what they are. There's free food everywhere, he brags. Just eat leaves, grass. The spirits give you nourishment. It's right before your eyes. Before I follow up, he takes out a baggie and sprinkles some kind of brown seasoning over his hedge salad. What's that, I asked, ever the foodie? Dirt, he replies. As if he had just asked, I just asked the dumbest question in the world. You mean, like, Earth? I ask, confused. Well, yes, I call it land, sod. It's all delicious. I hold out my half-eaten raw turnip, and he sprinkles a little of, of the vegan spice on it. No matter what he calls this seasoning, it still tastes like dirt to me. And this crust of the earth gets caught in my throat, and I gag. Here, he says, holding out a bottle of what I thought was lemonade. I take a big swig and spit it out immediately. The liquid tastes salty, spoiled, disgusted. What the hell is that, I demand in between dry heaving. Urine, he says matter-of-factly. Nothing better you than drinking your own wee-wee. But that's not my wee-wee, I sputter. You're correct, he answers with pride. It's mine. I wretch. I'm healthier than you, he says, shrugging without concern. You should be thanking my bladder, not complaining. I can't believe I just drank this hippie freak's piss. I continue to gag as he drives along, looking at me in food pity. You poor thing, he tiss-tiss. It's all those animal parts stuck in your veins that are making you sick. Bristle. Do you know what that is? No, I admit weakly. That's stiff animal hair left over on pork products. Gag. Don't be puking in my car, he warns. And if you do, I would expect you to eat it back up. Consuming one's old vomit is a way to train your digestive system to reject animal-derived substances. Please, I beg. Do you have anything a little less radical to eat? He thinks a minute. Sure. You like tofu? Yes, I yell, practically salivating for something I've at least enjoyed in my culinary past. Here we go, he offers, taking out a bowl made out of a recycled tin can. It's raw. This way tofu should be eaten. I scarf it down. He's listening to the ridiculously childish novelty tune Tofu Turkey by Joni Leeds. But I can tell he sees no humor in the chorus. Wobble, 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 not gobble, gobble, gobble. What do I care? At least the recording covers up the sudden rumbling in my stomach. We continue to drive, and much to my humiliation, I fart. Eugene looks over at me and says with a straight face, reject that suet.
What is suet, I ask? Anything to divert my embarrassment. The solid fat prepared from the kidneys of cattle, he deadpans. Suddenly a blast of shit fires in my pants without warning. The stench is overpowering. Oh God, I think he's going to expect me to eat this? That's what you get from eating meat, he scolds with a savage new fanaticism. I have food poisoning, I wail. Well, why didn't you cook the tofu? Cooking is a violation of the natural order of food, you fool, he lectures with an obnoxiously patronizing tone. Please pull over, I plead. Absolutely not, he answers. You have to learn a lesson about excrement. Your bowels are sending you a vegan message. No, they're not, I scream in mortification. I have diarrhea. Please let me stop at a restroom. I bet you have wiping issues, Eugene suddenly accuses me. Oh, God, what are you talking about, I argue, in building delirium as another mudslide of shit blasts out and trickles down my pants leg. God, I forgot how rude this was. Uh, you're, you're nuts, I yell. I'm sick. Pull over. I'm nuts, he barks. Me, the healthiest man you've ever met? Do you know what I'm going to die from? He rants like the fascist he is. Nothing. That's what I'm going to die from. Nothing. With that, he veers off Route 70 and pulls into a family rest stop, McDonald's, Pizza Hut, the whole nightmare of fast food right before my eyes. He slams on the brakes and the scabs on my knees break apart. The seatbelt cuts into my affected tattoo and the final log jam of liquid turds detonates out back. You were born under the astrological sign of feces, meat pig, and you will die under that sign. Eugene spits out in the final judgment. Now excrete from my car. I do. I walk through the parking lot and the whole world can see I have shit in my pants. <laughs> hey, shithead, some brat of a kid yells as both his parents hold their nose and laugh. I don't make eye contact. Just make a beeline for the restroom. I walk through the packed food court, gagging and farting every time I see or smell food. Wouldn't you know it? The bathroom is crowded. All the stalls are filled. Oh, my God, some man mutters in disgust when he sees my sorry state of affairs. Out of the corner of my eyes, I notice men stopping in their tracks and then scattering in horror. Finally, a stall opens and a college stu student type exits, makes direct eye contact with me. John Waters, he cries in surprise happiness. <laughs> Yes, I stupidly answer, pushing past him and slamming the door behind me. Oh, my God, hear him. I hear him yell to just about everybody, Did you see that? That was John Waters, and I'm almost certain he has shit his pants. <laughs> I hear grown men laugh in constipated smugness and digestive superiority. I hang my jacket on the inside hook and plop my chafed ass down on the toilet, but there is nothing left to come out. I attempt to clean myself up. It was hard outside to take off both my underpants and pants, but here in a rest area, men's room, it's downright scary. I'm sure bathroom users can see me bottomless through the cracks in the stall door. I roll up my disgusting boxer shorts to ditch them upon leaving. I flush a couple of times and use the clean toilet water to wash out my pants. I'm on my hands and knees scrubbing the cloth with all my might. It's a good thing I wasn't wearing white jeans like I usually do in the summer. I flush over and over until someone yells, you okay in there, buddy? I freeze. Yes, I'm fine, I lie, rinsing out my levies one last time and hoping they will dry quickly once I'm out in the sun. 
Just as I turn around to face the daunting task of slipping into wet pants, I see a hand come over the top of the stall quick as lightning and grab my jacket. Hey, fucker, I yell as I trip over my boots, struggling to get one leg into my sopping jeans. Stop, thief, I shout, but all I hear back are the footsteps of the running jacket snatcher. Someone just stole my coat, I scream, but for once, the bathroom seems empty. I run out of the booth in my stocking feet, still zipping up my fly, but all I see is a father and son walking in, eyeing me with alarm. Did you see somebody run out with my jacket, I ask, completely beside myself? How would I know what your jacket looks like, the father asked with rude sarcasm. Yeah, moron, spits out the kid to me as I stuff my feet into my unlaced hiking boots and race past them, depositing my diarrhea underpants in the trash can right in front of their suddenly scared, shitless eyes. I run through the rest area with my laces flapping, tripping over them every few steps. Thief, I yell, but people look away and I don't see a security guard in sight. Once outside in the parking lot, I realize whoever swiped my jacket is long gone. No jacket, no phone, no bag. I'm really alone in St. Louis for shit's sake. (laughs) Thanks. You know, you write this stuff and you never realize until when I did the audio recording that I would be recording and I'd look up and see the technicians <laughs> staring at me in horror. You never read it when, when you, until you've... I've never read that one out loud. I don't know that I would have picked it if I had previewed it. But uh, <laughs> it is, you know, that is the worst that can happen to you when you're hitchhiking. You know, the fear of diarrhea. You know, you don't get to say when you're hitchhiking, oh, could you pull over? You can't keep saying that. They just don't like it. So um, uh, uh, so I think what I'd like to do now is, is take it up with questions. And we can, we can really talk about anything. It doesn't have to be about the book. I mean, since this book came out, which was a year ago, it came out in hardback, um, I haven't really hitchhiked except for journalists when I had to do it. And my favorite time I did it was for, I was promoting the book in London, but they came to Baltimore to introduce me, to interview me. And I hitchhiked in Baltimore with a sign that said London and got a ride, (laughs) which was good. Uh, So I haven't really hitchhiked since, but I know that I can. And I I never fear really being stuck anywhere again. And um, I, I did realize that most everybody my age did hitchhike when they were young, but would never do it today. And most kids all never hitchhike, but would like to do it. So I'm still encouraging you to hitchhike. Maybe hitchhike home tonight here from this, really. Um, It used to be in L.A. if you were hitchhiking, you were a prostitute. But um, it depends on which road. I mean, the men were on Santa Monica and the women were on Santa Monica. No, the men were on Santa Monica, the women were on Sunset. But, uh, But when I was young, there were so many people hitchhiking on corners that you had to fight to get a space even, especially if you were hitchhiking from San Francisco to um, LA or back and forth and Santa Barbara uh, always was the place where there was a hitchhiker so it was really a very common thing to hitchhike I mean even my parents thought I should hitchhike home from school they didn't think that was a bad thing but today once I got a ride and I got in the car and the little kid was just said to his father why is this man in the car why did you stop? Who is he? Why? They don't even know what hitchhiking is. Really. And when I hitchhiked across the country, I only saw one other hitchhiker the whole time. And we didn't pick him up. <laughs> <laughs> so, anybody have a question? Yeah. That's the worst angle. Stand up. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> did you get a chance to I never met Janice Joplin, no. I, I've met a lot of people in the world, but I didn't. I loved her, you know, but I certainly did not meet her, no. 
when she died early, you know, I mean, she was, I guess, probably my age, too. So uh, maybe she was younger than me. I don't know. Do you know my friend Fayette Hauser? I do know a Fayette. Fayette was like Janice. She was one of the cockettes, but she was a real woman. Um, she was a female, female impersonator. Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah. Are there any taboos left? Sure, but not ones that are so interesting. I mean, I wouldn't make a lot of concentration camp jokes, you know. Um, but I'm not Jewish. If you're Jewish, I think you can. Um, I don't make a lot of child molest. Well, yeah, I make child molesting jokes. Um, I, I, I don't just try to um, shock anymore. I think after Pink Flamingos, I kind of never tried to top that. I'm always trying to startle you and surprise you. And, and I'm still... Um, want to be surprised. I, I, I'm always looking for human be- behavior that I don't understand. The whole thing about the Boston bomber, I've been following that case very heavily. And um, But everybody's forgotten what happened to the wife of the first one that's dead. She's already remarried and had another baby. Just think of that. She has a boyfriend and you don't. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I never was going to make really geek love. I love the book, certainly. I think it's a great one. The only... No, I never had the rights to make Geek Club. No, the only time I ever even tried to make a movie that I didn't write was Confederacy of Dunces because I wanted Divine to do it as a man. And I found out way later that I lived in New Orleans um, right before Pink Flamingos got nationally released. It was that was the poorest I ever was because I had made the movie. New Line had decided they would distribute it, but I lived with Mary Vivian Pierce, who plays Cotton and Pink Flamingos, and Danny Mills, who played Crackers, and we lived there. None of us had any money or anything. We were waiting for the movie to come out. At the same time, the author of John, what's his name, that wrote Confederacy of Nonsense, lived like on the same street as we did with his mother. He was writing that book then. Of course, we didn't know him or anything. So it's a great book, and I wanted Divine to play it as a man, you know. And uh, and they've never made that into a movie. It must be cursed because. Uh, no, I don't want to do it anymore because, you know, I only make movies I write, really. I wouldn't. I don't know how to do that, make somebody else's movie. But that one I did go and pitch and stuff. But not Geek Love. I like Geek Love. But I, I, had, I was never going to make that as a movie, so who knows. Yes. Hi. I actually interviewed you for Chic Magazine back in the 80s. Chic Magazine, yeah. Well, I was, yeah. Commemorate the 10th anniversary of Pink Flamingo. Was that a Larry Flint publication? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, we met in Venice. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, what's new in the way of films? Well, I do have a project that I can't talk about because it's in development with a studio, but it's a TV thing. We'll see if it happens. Um, I don't know. Maybe I've made my last movie. You know, there is no independent movies anymore. I mean, this book was a bestseller. My last movie didn't do well. So you stay kind of where they like you. Um, You know, I had a development deal to make this kid's movie called Fruitcake, which is a children's Christmas movie that I still want to make. And and, uh, we'll see. I, I, I just that after all the meetings I, I would leave and write a Blackberry thing thanking him but it would I so why didn't they call back and it was because it was I'd sign it JW and my um, spell check would correct it to Jew and I didn't realize <laughs> I and I didn't realize it you know that did happen once you know and it was really mortifying and so maybe the word spread I don't know <laughs> with what 
about her? Well, she, her, uh, she's great. I mean, she was a Katrina victim. She was swept away, and uh, she had to relocate in where they put the victim. She became. She was a lawyer. She had to get her license again. I, I'm still in touch with her. Yes, she is a law, lawyer in Florida, I believe, today. Yes, I'm in touch with most everybody that was in the movies. I, you know, I still uh, crybaby certainly. I see Johnny Depp and I see Tracy Lords and uh, most all. Unfortunately, Susan Terrell died this year. A lot, a lot of them, you know. But uh, yes, yeah, she was the scariest woman I ever met. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, to me, I'm not on Grinder. You know, what am I going to say? Hi, you know, I see sex ads that say, come over, we'll watch some John Waters movies. I'll bring them all. I got them all. Be right over. Um, you know, I, I'm amazed. Like, young people don't know what cruising is. I live in Provincetown in the summer. And if you now, if you were in Provincetown, staying on the street, and you looked in a window, and uh, somebody up came up to you and said, Hi, what are you doing? You think, What are you talking Are you crazy? You know, gay people don't even know what cruising is. They dance in Provincetown looking at Grinder on their cell phone while they dance. It's changed, you know. I mean, the biggest gay bar in Baltimore just went out of business. But is that progress? I don't know. I mean, because the young gay people, they don't. It's like going to a black bar. Yeah, you know what cruising is. Yeah, but, well, maybe you're multi-generation, right. But um, but what I'm saying is that um, it is going to change, you know, and the young gay people I all know, they don't want to just be with gay people. They want to be with everybody. And I'm anti-separatist too. That's the main thing I've always preached, really, that why should you just be with your people that are just like you? That's the only thing I don't understand about bears. You just want to hang around with people that look exactly like you. I'd only be able to hang around with Steve Buscemi, you know. <laughs> I, so, I, I, yes. Well, my favorite memories of Divine was certainly um, when Divine was um, not... Uh, Divine never walked around dressed... Divine was not a transsexual in any way. He had no desire to be a woman. Uh, right before he died, when he died in L.A., the next day he was going to film Married with Children. He was going to be the male gay uncle character, which would have been one of the first gay characters on a national hit sitcom. Probably would have been a great success. So um, my memories of Divine are just uh, him at Christmas. And it just, he, was, he was also a good friend. And whenever I go to uh, the Odeon restaurant in New York, that's the last time I actually saw Divine Alive. And he had a limo. God knows who paid for it. It wasn't me, and I know it wasn't him. So uh, we had dinner at Odeon. I know the same booth and kissing goodbye, and that was the last time I saw him. So um, it's still a shock to me that he's dead. You know, he's been dead a long time. He died when he was 43 years old. That's um, the age of my friend's children now. So um, still, it's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Edith Massey worked in a bar called Pete's Hotel that if you see multiple maniacs which were in the way in the middle of getting that restored and the music paid for so it can come out again. But um, it, Vincent Perenia, who did the production design for all my movie and, um, and also uh, Sue Lowe, who played Mole and was in a lot of my movies, they knew her and they lived in Fells Point where this where like wino bar was and she was the barmaid. And in Multiple Maniacs, you can see it. That is her in the bar where she worked. And uh, they said, you've got to meet this woman. You won't believe her. And she was like, oh, hi, you know, that chatty voice, you know. So we used to just hang in the bar and, and she used to wait on us. And I gave her that little part in Multiple Maniacs and just like star systems anywhere. The audience liked her. So um, I put her in Pink Flamingos 
years. And uh, it wasn't like she really liked eggs or anything. But <laughs> And I got used to her, but I remember we had this one guy we rented the camera from, and his wife wanted to come to the set one day, and she walked up in the woods and saw Edith sitting there in the middle of the winter in a girdle and bra and that plate screaming eggs, and she, like she saw the Me Lai massacre. I mean, she... <laughs> She, like, completely freaked out, made the husband leave with the equipment, and he never came back, really. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Who designed your blazer? Um, great Belgian designer, and I always say his name, Walter von Buren. Say it. Walter von Buren Dunk. Walter von Buren yes. And I'm a big fan of his. Thank you. Although, whenever I wear this, usually for an event, I didn't, you know, didn't wear this to breakfast at Ben Frank's. But, um, I, you know, I always realize how ridiculous I look because when I come from my hotel room down on the elevator, the elevator door, and I get on, people go, oh my God, like I just have to look down. You know, it's fine to wear it if I'm up here, but getting here in this outfit is problematic sometimes. Yes. Um, so you said that independent film like, is like not a thing anymore? Well, it's a thing. It's just yeah, <laughs> the budgets know. aren't a thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I just wanted to ask you about. Like, do you think there's going to be like any kind of, I don't know, resurgence or like Well, it's great for young people. I mean, if I was starting out, this would be what the studios are looking for. Somebody to make your film on, a, on, a, on your cell phone and, you know, make it for no money. But I don't feel like being a faux underground filmmaker at 69 years old. It's bad enough that I'm the age of a sex act I don't was never my favorite right <laughs> yes the three most influential people in your childhood one of which was Zorro well Zorro was a lesbian stripper I know that used to just come out and she'd be really butch and nude and say what the fuck are you looking at to men she was great but uh that wasn't my childhood. I think my childhood was certainly, I was on the Howdy Doody show. That was probably the first thing that kind of, um, you know, I was like eight years old and my parents took me to the NBC and, and uh, I saw that it was all a lie and everything was fake and that's what I wanted to do forever. So <laughs> that was very important. Yes. Yes. With, um, this oh yeah, I just do. Uh, recently, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas, Fargo. Fargo you know, I, I, yeah, I do it all the time, and I have a Christmas show too. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on the road a lot. Yeah. Yes. I was looking top ten film list that every Thank you. An art forum. Yes, I do it. Yeah. Well, I usually, now that I have that column, they send me screeners, which is amazing. But um, I still go to see movies a lot. Um, I like foreign feel-bad movies. You know, I like, I like Gaspar Noe. I like Bruno Dumont. I like all those feel-bad French movies, really. <laughs> but I, I can't wait to see Mad Max, you know. So I still go see uh, some commercial movies, yeah, yeah. I still go to movies, yes. Yeah. Do you still have Lobstora? No, Lobstora was the the lobster that rapes Divine and multiple maniacs. No, and inside that was Vincent Perenio and his brother. You can see his legs. But uh, we we had it. I used to take it around to my apartments. I'm talking about in the late 60s, you know. And eventually we took it to the harbor and dumped it in Baltimore before they built Harbor Place, before it was a uh, place where tourists went. It was like rats and sailors and mean lesbians, you know. It was a really, I liked it better, actually. And uh, 
we threw it in the water there. We gave it a sea burial. So, um, no, I, I still... Because it was falling apart and stuff. Yes, it was paper mache the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, with who? I'm sorry. Oh, okay, great, great. I was thought, I thought you said he was in the movies. I'm trying to figure out. Wait a minute, what would he? Oh, well, that's good. Well, we got a lot of people. You know, if you look through female trouble, it's really scary for me to see how many people are no longer with us. Gene Hill died this year, and uh, uh, a lot of people. But um, they're there. They're in those movies, ready to jump out. But uh, good. Well. Not that I really believe in that, but uh, I, I wish I did. There's no such thing as karma, I promise you. I mean, uh, so many assholes I know are alive, and so many great people are dead, really. <laughs> yes? Do you want to talk about well, I did last night on, on um, Bill Maher, you know, uh, to me, I, I don't know if I'm really the one to qualify because while it was burning, I was filming a sequel and the, I was doing a cameo in the new Alvin the Chipmunk movie in Atlanta. <laughs> so while uh, Rome burned, uh, I was Alvin. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's bad, you know, I mean, it's... You know, I said last night that I, I think that we should they should make it not a race issue, make it a class issue because there's just as many poor whites in, in uh, Baltimore. They should team up and don't burn down your own neighborhoods. I can think of a couple country clubs, you know. But um, it's a terrible thing for the city. But I, it's, it's weird because I'm also friendly with the mayor. I'm, I knew the governor. They, they come to my Christmas party, and I respect them. Nobody smokes pot till after they leave. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing story, though, certainly. It's not over. And um, I will be surprised if all those police are convicted. Um, it's a tough thing. Um, it, it's, it's, an, it's a story. It's a sad story. And it's certainly bad for Baltimore, I think. But um, I think everybody was... The Maryland Film Festival was last week. And um, before all the ticket sales were down, people didn't want to go out. It was right after the riots and everything. And it was packed. Everybody came, everything. So I think Baltimoreans like to fight. And they like to be, you know, come back from stuff. So I think everybody was really moved. By it. But it is a city where, and I said last night on Bill Maher, but maybe we should have like jury duty where it's mandatory once a week you have to move to the opposite econ economic neighborhood that you live in and raise your, get your hair done, you know, in, in the opposite neighborhood where you live and let poor people move to the rich neighborhoods and, and just for a week to see what it's like. Go to the, put your kids in the school, shop at the stores and everything. Maybe that's the only way because people don't go from neighborhood to neighborhood in Baltimore. They stay with it. But there's some good things about that. I mean, it's the only city where I say I have an apartment in New York and people say to me, why? <laughs> so, I mean, talking about it is, you know, I was there for it and it, they weren't rioting in my neighborhood. Um, but however, uh, it, it's it's an ongoing story that is not just Baltimore. It's, it's about everywhere. And there is no easy answer. It's not just throw money at it either. Um, I, I don't know the answer, except that we have to go to every Everybody's neighborhood. We have to be in different things, and then, and 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 not just stay with people like yourself. It's another kind of separatism in a way. If you only hang around with people that are on the same economic level as you are, is also leads to boredom, really, and and not learning anything. Yes. Well, I, you know, I got thrown out of every school, but I, I actually didn't want to go to school. You know, I knew what I wanted to do. You go to school to learn what you want to do. I already knew when they wouldn't let me. 
Um, no once anywhere in the world has someone paid me money ever in my life, and they had never asked me if I went to school. Not one person that ever gave me a penny has ever said, did you go to college? But I certainly am glad I wasn't a surgeon. You know, you do have to go to college, right? Um, so... Uh, I went to NYU, but it wasn't really their fault. I didn't want to go to school. I was took LSD all the time. You know, I went to the movies every day on 42nd Street and saw Olga's House of Fame and, and, and also all the underground movies. So I got my education. It just wasn't at NYU. And, you know, I should have been thrown out. I stole books every day and resold them to the bookshop. I know a terrible thing to say in here. Um, but working in a bookshop was the only real job I ever had. I, I worked at the Doubleday Bookshop in Baltimore, and I worked at Provincetown bookshop for many, many years. And I got my full education there. It was a great place. And the owners of the bookshop said I could have free books as long as I read them and sold them. So I, I got my education there. The, the owner of the store told me about Ronald Furbank. Told me about all these great things. That was my that was my education in a bookstore. So um, if I ever had to get it, it's the only real job I've ever had. So um, it's really good that you support this bookshop. And it is a great bookshop. And the great bookshops are surviving. They're not, they're not going under, which is really good. Just be suspicious if there's candles on sale in a bookshop. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, did you ever figure out why I guess, I mean, you know, I don't want to retrudge that. You know, I'm a great fan of Kenneth Anger, and I think that he's, uh, he influenced, he did the ironic use of pop music before anybody ever in the world did it. And maybe, he should maybe be mad, because he gave me a great quote for one of my books, and then I was asked to review, I think, the third or the second Hollywood Babylon, and I said only one negative thing. I said, if you're going to tell dirt about people, you should at least pretend that you're upset about it, and so I guess I shouldn't have said that. Maybe that's why. I don't know, but I, I hope that's buried, because I'm a really fan of Kenneth, and uh, I think his films are incredibly beautiful and influential, and he did so many things before anybody did, so I'm a huge fan of Kenneth's, even if he's not a friend if he's not a fan of mine. That's okay. Yes? Well, that was a long time ago. I was like going to make one where where basically she's home and she keeps talking about it and the audience says, stop talking about that. You had a bad dream. And she said, no, I really was there. And so they give her shock treatments and she still keeps talking about it. So she starts taking acid and then she goes back. She does poppers and then she goes back to Oz, but only for a minute. And she sees the you know, the scarecrow and, and, and the tin man and, and she sees him on, she's the lion's a drag queen and he gives her the wicked witch's outfit and she comes home and starts cross-dressing and opens a gay bar called the Yellow Brick Load, you know. <laughs> I doubt that one will get made. <laughs> yes? Some did, but most of the people that recognized me drove past me and then said, was that John Mortar? And then came back and picked me up. Only the first one, you know, because I was standing a block from my house. But uh, no, they didn't. Or some one a great woman in the Marines came over to give me money, thought I was a homeless person, and then realized it was me and started laughing and screaming. Uh, people tried to give me money. No, people, and a few I told was me, and they said, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. This poor homeless guy thinks he's a movie director. Yeah. 
So, no, especially when I'm standing there in the middle of the country in, you know, a baseball hat and a wind-beaten face, you know, with a sign. Why would they think it was me, even if they did know it was me, going by 60 miles an hour? Well, they weren't going. I always stood on the entrance ramps right before the sign that says it's illegal to go down on the highway. And the, I got a ride from a cop once. The cops didn't give me trouble. One, check my, uh, see if I had warrants, that kind of thing. And I had with me a fame kit that my assistant made, which I could pull out, you know, like I liked it. Like, excuse me, I'm showing my director's Guild of America card. <laughs> like this will give like a get out of jail free card. But it kind of worked, yeah. Because and and the one cop said, "Well, it doesn't say you're a professional hitchhiker." And I said, "Oh, okay. Well, then give me a ride." And he did. So um, no, the police didn't really hassle me. No, and I had a sign that said uh, on one side that said "Writing a Hitchhiking Book." It never worked for a person people to pick me up but it worked for cops I would flash it when I'd see them and then they thought oh yeah they just didn't want to deal with it but it the opposite worked uh, if I was um, Reno for no one picked me up when I had that sign because they think what kind of book maybe you know they don't what's my privacy you know they didn't know I learned about signs about which worked and which didn't work and humor didn't work I had one that said I'm not psycho which I thought was funny and people would laugh but they didn't pick me up and I thought wait a minute my job is not to warm up the crowd as they go to work. <laughs> you know, yeah, they were laughing, but it wasn't doing me any good. So the signs that worked, which gave a far distance, but one that was possible. You know, I, I had an original like San Francisco and in Baltimore, people just laugh and they see it. It was like Cuba, you know. So um, I did learn about signs, but a sign does help if you're hitchhiking. Except one people thought that I was so stupid as a homeless person. You don't stand. You go. You stand at a red light. They told me, thinking that I they didn't know what hitchhiking was. So they're used to seeing people with a cardboard sign, but that would be somebody that was begging at a red light. So that's what I learned. But it is sort of a depression area era kind of prop, a sign with a hitchhiker. But I, I always, except when it was windy in Kansas, it would blow, and then you had to hold it like this. So my knuckles was the only thing I didn't put sunblock on. And I got to the hotel room, the hotel, the motel room that night, and they were purple, my knuckles, from just holding the sign in the sun. So if you're hitchhiking, put sunblock on your knuckles. That's one thing I learned. <laughs> Yes. No, I. They were all horrible. I mean, the Holiday Inn. The Holiday Inn was the worst, and the Days Inn was the best. That's my review of all of them. Uh, they all. They all have terrible lighting for reading. Like you know, who wants to have a romance in the Holiday Inn? You know, it's not my idea of a sex pit. But but there, they. You can't read in there. There's no lights to read. And the Holiday Inn was only the one woman was mean to me. She said, "Sir, if you," because I was flashing my sign outside, and this guy drove buying the lot and I held up the sign she came out and said if you flash that sign to any more of our guests I'm calling the police and I said well that guy looked like the type that would pick me up she said that was my husband (laughs) 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 but it didn't work I would go down in the breakfast room and think oh maybe somebody will recognize they give me a ride people just looked away no one would make eye contact people in breakfast rooms in the Holiday Inn are unhappy people yeah (laughs) 
Yes. Can you talk about what it was like to taught film in prisons? I didn't, well, I'm, I taught in prison and we did make films there, but not to be shown. Part of the thing was that we couldn't show them, basically, but I had a video guy. But we edited it right as we shot. It was dogma, very dogma. And, um, and that was the prison where I was hired um, to show Pink Flamingos to murderers and stuff as therapy. Um, I think it worked, but the warden was fired. <laughs> <laughs> but one of my students there, um, I helped get out, and he's doing great. And he uh, he had a double life sentence, and he served 27 years, and he's doing really, really well. And um, he bought his own house, and he got a job back at the prison, which is unheard of, and just made a training video for the guards about how to get along with prisoners. So I'm in at the end and said, I've been arrested too. You never know who you're going to meet in jail. Uh, so that was kind of a success story, yes, I think. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah. Do you have any strong feelings about Los Angeles? Los Angeles court, I mean, I've never lived here because I always thought it would be bad for my film career because then they get used to me. When I'm here, I'm like, you know, I'm going to do a pitch so they, they want to, I'm here for one week, so they take the pitch, you know? Um, I have great friends here. I, uh, the only thing that I have against it is that I never meet anybody that isn't in a show business in some way, you know? Where in Baltimore, I can hang around with, I know an undertaker, I know a truck driver. But certainly, it has been a great city for my movie. I mean, the the new art played Pink Flamingos longer than any any city in the whole. I played for ten years there, at least one night a week at midnight. So I have a great soft spot for for uh, being here. Some great great memories, and uh, and some of my really great friends live here. So I'm not against Los Angeles at all. I just think it would be bad for my movie career if I had lived here because people would have gotten used to me. Yes. Well, I'm going to visit her tomorrow morning. So, um, Leslie is, you know, would be serious if we're talking about her. I, I don't think it's a funny subject. I think it's a very serious subject that she was, she's been my friend for 28 years or something. And um, her last parole hearing was worse than ever. They gave her five years till the next one. Usually it was two. And I think I hired her a good lawyer, and it, it worked in the opposite, because I think they ambushed her. I mean, I thought, for the first time, it was really unfair, in my opinion. Not from the victim's point of view. I have under, I completely understand everything they say, and I would never criticize them. But the first question, they said, would you, you know, every time she has to go through it and talk about it, and they always say she's not honest, so she takes on full blame that wasn't Manson, it was me, which... I personally question, you know, I, I don't think if she had never met Manson, she would have never been there. But um, they said to her, would you have killed children? And she was like, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, you know. And then they said later, see, potential child killer. And, they, and then they said, how many people that wrote you letters were black? because you want to start a race war. They're all from white people. You know, using that, it seems unfair to me. I understand that there's people that think she shouldn't get out. I get that. But it seems to me that she has had a really good, the shrink reports are good. She has not done anything wrong in jail. She met a madman when she was 19. Uh, it's not like she hasn't paid something. I, I, I personally believe she deserves a second chance. I think she is a perfect parole risk. There is no risk with, with parole.
enthralling her. But it's such a famous, notorious, hideous case that I, I don't know what's ever going to happen. But um, while she's been in jail, she has she has helped taught people to read, done the AIDS. Well, she's done what she said. All I can do is be a better person than I would have been if I hadn't done this terrible thing. So she has done that, and that is all you can really do. I mean, I'm against the death penalty for everybody, even the Boston bomber. Um, I, I knew that they would give it to him because to be on that jury, you had to say that you would give the death penalty, right? So, but he's 21. Will, will, will he be, what will he be like at 70? Is there any redemption possible? No one knows because I don't know what he thought. We don't know what he thought. Is he sorry? I don't know. You know, but that doesn't make it right either. Even he is sorry. He hasn't had time to be sorry yet. But, um, so I don't know. It's a fascinating case. If I wasn't this, I'd be a defense lawyer. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm saying is if you have friends in jail, visit them. That's, that's my message here. <laughs> All right, let's get on a lighter note. <laughs> yeah. Well, they just ended it. <laughs> yes? Well, if you read the chapters in the book that are my fantasies the best, like a demolition derby driver, I fall in love with a knife salesman. You know, in real life, I did have a boyfriend that was a door-to-door knife salesman, but he was an unsuccessful one. In, in the book, he's a successful one. Like, and I always thought, who, what do you mean you're a door-to-door knife salesman? Who would let anyone in? Who is it? Oh, I'm selling butcher knives. Oh, come right on in. <laughs> You know, and there there is a movie called Door to Door Maniac starring Johnny Cash, where he, which I always thought of that. And I, I this year was at the Grammys because I had a Grammy nomination for best um, spoken word, and I was Joan Rivers beat me, but of course, you know, death is campaigning, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, but Johnny Cash's daughter was Rosanna Cash was there and I told her you know that when I only met Johnny Cash once in my life and I said wow I love door to door maniac and he looked at me and he said June this is a, get over here this man just mentioned a movie to me that no one has dared bring up ever in my life and, uh, and I have the poster and she said I do too <laughs> so I always think that door to door maniac what a great title who is it <laughs> I mean, do they have door-to-door salesmen now for anything? I can't even imagine that they would allow that. Somebody knock on your door, you know, make me crazy if they came to my house. I guess Jehovah's Witnesses still do that, though, right? They knock on doors, right? Yeah. Yeah. But does Mary Kay, do they still have that? But they, they yeah, but they don't knock on your door, don't they? They have, like, um, networking meetings and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who did? Oh, right. Doing what? Like raising money? Really? I did, you know, I did Tammy Faye. I did a show with her once, and I didn't like her. You know what I mean? She just came to gay people. There was no one left but them. You know, it seemed like to me. That was the last audience she could find. And then her husband was still upstairs selling Jesus Freak books while she was down making eye makeup jokes to drag queens. I didn't trust her. (laughs) Yeah. Have you had any thoughts about, or could just speak directly to what you think? 
Culture and madness, well, certainly, you know, some of the best authors in the world are mad, but you can't be that mad. You still have to write it. You know, you have to sit down every day and write a book. Um, I, I think certainly, and then you learn, I mean, the, the Genet biography is great because eventually he was a thief and everything, but when he was famous at the end, society ladies invited him to his house and prayed that he stole something out of their purse, you know, which is so great. Um, so I, I think there is madness like Artaud, a perfect example of someone that was crazy that almost never recovered from it, but he's still remembered. So, um, and all people that are in the creative field are a little bit crazy. That's why, um, you know, why why suicide and drug addiction and AIDS and like tragedies hit the creative community. They always seem to be damaged a little bit more, but that's because they feel more and, and, and that, that they can get those feelings across to people. And that's what writing is about. But to write it down every day is hard. You can be the most brilliant person at making remarks and being funny, but you still have to write it down. You have to get up every day and do it. And um, and that to me is, um, I, I guess that's what I've done mostly. I wrote all my movies. I wrote my books. I wrote, uh, you know, my stand-up act. Even the art shows I do, I think them up before. So um, I've always been a writer more than anything else. And um, so that's why I'm comfortable with people that read um, and, and I think it's people still do read but the, but it's but it's a, a kind of person that um, it, it's for me and I know that there's great television now but I don't watch it as much because I can't read as much you can't binge watch and binge read I think that's impossible I can't do it unless you just quit work in the day so uh, <laughs> But I never understand people that say, um, I can't read it now because I fall asleep. Well, it's the opposite. To me, if the book's good, I stay up till four in the morning. I don't fall asleep reading. I fall asleep listening to stupid people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes? When do you feel you're you're directing directing, um, directing with Edith's son? Directing what? You're you're film directing with Edith's peak. Oh, I don't know. My peak, I guess, uh, that I got any of them made, you know. What's my best movie? My mother always said, Serial Mom's your best movie. <laughs> Maybe it is. Yeah. It was the only movie I had enough money. Yeah. My skill. Uh, uh, I developed it by just doing it. Nobody taught me by going out there and doing it and, and um, dealing with well, You look at my early movies, or all my movies are filled with mistakes, but Cecil B. Demented said it best. He said, technique is nothing more than failed style. <laughs> yes? No, I never got laid. You know, I, you know, and I, a gay person, not a gay person picked me up. Pussies. Right, right. Uh, as far as I know, no one that picked me up was gay. Um, but you never know. But uh, so, no, no one really. One night I almost, this trucker said I could sleep in the cab with him when I was going to have to sleep in the woods. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I would have. <laughs> but that didn't happen. No. But in the best and the worst, I have sex, yes. In the, in the, in the first part of the fictitious books, I do. Now, that's a big difference of hitchhiking when you're 18 and 66. Yeah. Um, the same perverts were out there then that are out now, but they're not usually. That's why I wrote The Person That Kills Me is a person that only wants to kill cult film directors because um, people said, aren't you afraid of serial killers? And I said, well, even the gay serial killers, they, they pick young people usually. You know, they don't pick older people to kill. <laughs> yes? What was the 
second. I think, oh, in this town, what was it called? Bonner? I call it something. No, where was it? Uh, somewhere in Ohio and Kansas, right on that border. And I was there for 10 hours standing there. It was torture. Oh, the longest ride. Well, probably the Quebec kid was this um, Republican elected official that picked me up in the pouring rain in Maryland. Didn't know how he was going to get his lunch at the subway, driving his mother's Corvette. He picked me up. He had no idea who I was. Even when I told him, he had never seen my movies. And Republican elected official. He took me to Ohio, and then we just kept talking. Then he went home, and then kept texting me, and drove all the way back 80 miles an hour for 48 hours straight, and picked me up in Denver, and took me to Reno. So um, that was the longest ride. He was great, and um, I'm going to be in his wedding. Uh, so um, you know, and his parents, I think, still hate me because. Because if you Google me, it's not friendly from a parent's viewpoint. They said, what do you mean? You're, I thought you were went to get your lunch and he's in Ohio with John Waters. And who's that? And then they look it up. Oh, great. <laughs> and even his friend said, oh, great. You're with a gay man in a hotel in Reno. Way to go. Right. But we just we just laughed about it. You know, it was a kid on an adventure. And why not? You know, and um, I think he's doing great. I'm friends with, I've seen the um, the Kansas couple that picked me up. They came to the Baltimore signing with their gay son and his boyfriend. Um, the Here We Go Magic, the band that picked me up. I've had dinner with them. Uh, the Marine that picked me up had a baby and named her, the middle name of the child after me. Um, let me think. Who else have I been in touch with? The minister's wife met my mother. She didn't met me, but I talked to her. So um, the ones, some of them I have, I've kept in touch with. Other ones I don't know their name or anything. And there was the only one I forgot to give the thanks for picking me up hitchhiking card. And I went to do a uh, college appearance near where he lived. And I was praying he was in the audience, but he wasn't. I still have his card for him. But I don't know if he knew about the book. He maybe thought I was lying and just a crazy person that said I was writing a book. But he was the one where I was stuck in this road area, the kind, you know, a rest area where there's no, there's just a bathroom and vending machines or in a park. And it was in Kansas and there wasn't, the next town was 100 miles away and it was getting dark and I thought, this is it, right? And there were no cars there. So when someone would come in, I would go and stand outside the bathroom like such a pervert, right? And like people would come out and say, could you give me a people would, Oh, get away from me. And, and this kid, you know, I, I kept showing him myself on the, the, the spin magazine and all the stuff. The story had broken that I was hitchhiking. That's the only time the press helped me because he started to at least stop and listen and he did give me a ride. But that was scary, standing outside of bathrooms, waiting for people, especially, and then I could, this is a terrible thing, but I played a game with myself and people got out of the cars whether they had to piss or shit. I could tell by their expressions. And you could tell how long they were in there, really. Which it was. And this one guy had to wait for like a half hour. I thought, oh, this poor thing. What's the matter with him, right? <laughs> he was really pissed off. Give me right. He wouldn't even talk. He was furious when he came out. He'd been in there for a half hour having a bad time, you know? And then he came out and I'm waiting. Oh, great. You know, he, he just ran to his car. He wouldn't even make eye contact with me. <laughs> yes, yeah. Consider hitchhiking in another country? Oh, it'd be better if you could speak the language. It would be much harder. I think it's easier to hitchhike in Europe. Yeah, if you couldn't speak the language, I don't know. I think it would make it harder. Because I always had in my mind, I write in the book, of if I had been frightened, if somebody had picked me up like for real danger, I was going to say, I'm filming a reality show, and the satellite's filming us, but it's on me, so if you leave, you can get away. I thought that might have worked. 
But how do you say that in a foreign language? You know, I mean, that's that's the problem. So no, I I don't have to really. I mean, I but if I had to, yes, that's the one thing I know that hitchhiking I can do it, and I will get a ride if I have to. So should we do just a few more, and then we'll do the signing? Okay. Yes, in the back. The last what? The last three books. Well, I'm a huge Elena Ferranti fan. I'm obsessed by her. I really love her. And I just finished volume four of my struggle. I love I love him too. So those are the last two books that I think I just read. Let me think. What else? I'm, I'm reading the book. I love Can't and Won't by uh, Lydia Davis. I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, I'm reading right now the book about copy editing called Between You and Me. Um, but the whole book is about being a copy editor. Uh, so I, those, are the, those are the last books I, I, I would recommend. Certainly is Elena Ferranti and uh, My Struggle. And I thought I could never read six volumes of this person, but I'm on volume four. Hurry up, you lazy translators. Get, get to number five. Um, I have a great time with them. So um, I, would, I would definitely recommend those too. There's a great biography of Valerie Solanos that's out too that's really a, a shockingly well-written book that I like very much. Um, just off the top of my head, those are the ones I've read recently. One more and then we're going to do the signing. Who shall it be? Yes. Of the last movies that came out in the last three years, which one would you have liked to write? Well, I don't know that I would have... He has what, the movies that came out in the last three years, which one would I like to direct? None of them, because I didn't write them. To me, but I love Spring Breakers. I'm a big fan of that movie. I'm a big Gaspar Noe fan. Um, I, I can't wait to see his new movie. It's in Cannes right now. So um, I, I don't want to direct a movie I didn't write. So um, I would have wished I had made Fruitcake. That would have been... It was a terribly wonderful children's Christmas adventure about happy meat thieves. And um, we have them in Baltimore. They knock on your door and they say, meat man and you go down and you say I'd like a pound of um, veal and, uh, and a ham and they go shoplift it and bring it back and you pay half what's on the label this is a common thing in Baltimore meat man you know so um, I, I feel that this needs to be brought to the public really <laughs> alright okay thank you all very much thank you You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.